Great morning, everyone, and welcome to Thank God for Monday. I'm Brother Greg Cellini of the Franciscan Brothers of Brooklyn and Seton Hall University, class of 1985. My great pleasure to be back with you today. The purpose of Thank God for Monday is to inspire you, our audience, to take personal responsibility for your professional satisfaction. We want to provide you hope, healing, and peace in these unprecedented, turbulent, uncertain times. Motivate you to search deep inside yourself in the quest for fulfillment. Listeners, it's really up to you as how to utilize the information we provide today and take full accountability for the decisions you make and the resulting outcomes. And one of the goals of our show, thank God, for Monday is to introduce role models. Role models of people who take very bold steps in their work lives. And as such, we are honored today to have with us a most special guest. His name is Melvin J. Gravely II. Mel is an active civic leader and the chief executive officer of one of the largest commercial construction companies in Cincinnati, Ohio. He is also the author of an outstanding book, Dear White Friend is its titles, The Realities of Race, The Power of Relationships, and Our Path to Equity is the subtitle. Hello and welcome to Thank God for Monday, Mel. Greg, how are you? I'm excited to be with you. The honor is all ours, certainly. We've only got 30 minutes, sadly. We could talk for hours, so if it's okay with you, we're going to jump right in the deep end of the pool. All right, sounds good. The title of your book, Mel, is Dear White Friend. But for who specifically is the audience for this book? Help us out, please. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, as I was writing the book, um, it was uh, to my metaphorical um, friends who, uh, in the center of the target, are white for sure, but uh, they were maybe struggling to figure out what's really going on with race. They may be seeing what's going on around them, and they have a heart for caring about it, but they're confused on what's going on, what's their role in it, what can they do about it. And so this book was written, that's the, the center of the target. There's probably some circles around that, including my black friends who were fi looking for a voice to express not just their feelings, but some facts and realities and solutions underneath those feelings that would help them express to their white friends, hey, here's what I've been trying to say. Here's what I've been experiencing. And here's what I think we can do together. So those two audiences together are the target for this book. Having looked at this book rather closely and actually for our discussion, there is no doubt there are many, many people who could benefit. Everybody actually can benefit from this. So there are indeed a primary audience, as you said, but many other secondary and tertiary audiences, no doubt about it. Now, I'm very curious, Mel, and I'm sure our audience is as well. Why did you write this book? What was your motivation? And then what are you hoping to accomplish with it? Yeah. Well, my motivation is, I think, as I'm starting to reflect on myself, as I'm a guy who it, it appears that if I see a situation that I think I can be helpful to, I almost always lean in. It, it means, though, my calendar is crazy. My evenings are full. My day life is, is you know, is, is, is nuts because people know that if they call on me and my heart moves to it, I'm, I'm going to say yes. 
Uh, but the actual, yeah, yeah. So, but the actual motivation was I didn't see a civic leader and a business person that combination of person writing on this topic. There are a lot of books out here on this, but they almost all started at the graduate level. They, they expected you to, you know, really get it already. And I wanted to provide an on-ramp for people to understand and provide a perspective. I'm not a scholar in this topic of race. I'm not an expert. I'm not a journalist. I'm not, I, I'm just a business guy who cares about people and cares about our community. And I'm saying, here's my voice on this topic. And what I hope to, to accomplish is, higher quality conversations, more intentional actions by people, more connection between races. Um, and early indications say that people are talking about it. They're getting into break, breaking into discussion groups. We've created a discussion guide now to help people, but they're breaking into discussion groups. They're taking it to their board and the board's reading it together. Um, communities are reading it together. You know, one community, one, one book kind of, kind of things. That's what I hoped would happen. I, I actually, probably more prayed it would happen, but we had no plan for it to happen. So it is really happening organically. What's so wonderful at this book, as you say, it really stimulates dialogue, dialogue that we so desperately need around this subject matter. And well, I hope that it's at a tone, Greg, that um, that doesn't water down this topic, but cools it down enough that we can have really good, high-quality, in-depth conversations from a place of truly seeking to understand one another, which which was my goal. Yeah, you've accomplished that and then some. There's no doubt about that. Now, what I find very interesting and why we wanted to have you on, thank God, for Monday, you mentioned you're a civic leader and a businessman. And to me, I don't know how you feel about this, that's an extremely rare combination now. Yeah, well, in our community, I tell you, there are a lot of folks in business who are, are taking to civic uh, action. I, I chair a group of 100 I co-chair a group of 100 CEOs here in Cincinnati, and our only purpose is collective civic action. And so we're engaging in economic development, and we're engaging in, in edu- you know, K through 12 education and government affairs and things that make our community better. Um, so it's almost a natural thing. But what they're not talking about is this kind of uh, ongoing systemic, um, ingrained situation around race. We're actually, we've actually been dodging that conversation. Well, now, at least in Cincinnati, it's in the center of the circle. We're having a real good conversation about it. Oh, that's terrific. Now, one of the things you say, if I perceive correctly, is we can't trust what we have learned about race. Why can't we, Mel? And what are the implications, please, of your assertion on this? Yeah, well, I make that assertion because I can't trust what I learned about race. And so I'm thinking most people were raised similarly to me. And um, and quite honestly, if you just go back through your history, you, you start with slavery and enslavement of, of human beings. And you you uh, it ended and, and Abraham Lincoln ended it and and. Uh, even the, you know, some slave owners were benevolent to their, to their slaves, uh, their enslaved folks. And then you fast forward to civil rights. Uh, we passed civil rights legislation. We're all equal. No one talked about implications. No one talked about lasting kind of, uh, uh imp- you know, things that are still with us from, from the legacy of Jim Crow and those other things. N- none of that comes out. And it, and it, and when we don't have that information, we make assumptions about where we are and what we can do going forward. And so I say we can't trust it, not because someone lied to us, not because someone intentionally, I don't even, you know, presuppose people intentionally left things out. I will tell you, though, there's more to our history than what we learned in school. And so as we learned the implications of our history together, I think it's an opportunity for us to say, oh, I now know why 
those neighborhoods look like they do. I now know why the highway goes through the through the neighborhood that it goes through. I now understand why, you know, black businesses are so much smaller and the legacy of multi-generational uh, poverty is more prevalent than multi-generational business. I now understand why some of these things are going on, Greg. Have you found, Mel, that when there's greater understanding, then people can change their minds and more importantly, their hearts and really then be different and act differently? I, I have found that. I found that uh, we, we've all got a narrative of how we got here. And as we change or enlighten that, that narrative, and it has to be both ways, because I've got to understand how my white friends got to where they are, too. But as we improve that narrative, um, I think people do see things differently and therefore behave differently. What I will say is it takes two things, though. I think it takes an evolution of our understanding, and I think it takes proximity. Because when I get closer to people, I get an opportunity to see them as people. When I see them from afar, I only see them as those people because I'm not close enough to really get my own. So I think it takes both things, and I'm encouraging um, both. And keep working on your own self-awareness, your self-education, understanding you know, how things have been, but then get proximate. You know, get closer to a situation. Don't leave it to blacks to enter white worlds. Whites should enter black worlds and say, I've never been in a room where I'm the only person not of color. Uh, and so what does that feel like? And let me let me immerse myself in a black church or in a black restaurant or in a black theater or things that are targeted at an audience that is not typically me. Thank you so much for saying that, because the light bulb just went on for me. I've had a significant evolution the last few years with a greater understanding of the whole situation. But I have done a poor job immersing myself, what you just said, into black restaurants, black businesses, et cetera. So that's one of the things I need to do uh, moving forward. And this is- Greg, imagine, imagine the empathy that comes from understanding how that feeling is when you walk into a room, and my white friends have described it to, to me this way, when you walk into a room and everyone else is black or a person of color, and, and you're not, it's that feeling of, do I belong here? Well, imagine that every single day. Most of my white friends can escape from that, even if they stay there and have the meal, which occasionally they don't. They can escape from it and go back to a world that is different. Um, it is more difficult for uh, African-Americans in this city, to, to, in this country to do that. But just imagine that feeling every day. Every day I get up and I go to work. Every day I get up and I go to a business meeting. Every day I engage in our community. Every day I go to a restaurant. Every day I get on an airplane. Every day I go everywhere I go. Um, it is almost always predominantly white. And I think that feeling brings empathy. And again, uh, it, it allows us to, to, to engage differently. Last thing I'll say on that, and I know I'm ram rambling on a bit. No, is please. Oftentimes we get invited, we blacks get invited into a white situation because they want to diversify that situation. And I think that's great. I, I mean, I, I applaud that. Um, and I would suggest that that is, um, um, we should also invite ourselves into black situations. I, I just think that, you know, when we think about diversity, we think about inviting them, them, people of color in. And I'm saying, well, what about the opposite? So I can really get a feel and a, and a, and a connection to people in, in, a, in a, a situation that is controlled by them. 
And it really is about power, control, sense of identity. We've got to keep working on bringing those things together so that you can be white and fully advantaged the way you are. And I can be okay understanding that. And you can, and I can be fully who I am and we can be fully who we are together. That's where I'm trying to get to. Oh, that is so, so important. So in this great book you've written really takes us a long way to have the dialogues and move us in that direction. Now, if it's okay with you, Mel, I want to ask you a question about two terms, because I know for myself, I struggle with these terms. They are racial equity and equality. What's the difference? I know there has to be a difference, but what's the difference, please? Yeah, um, and I know people are struggling with this. And actually, I think there's some people pushing back on even the term equity um, prior to even seeking to understand what it means. Um, because I think they fear what it means. So let me try to explain the difference between the two. And in the book, I used the monopoly game to, to do, to do that. Um, to me, the monopoly game is the ultimate equality game on the planet. Everyone starts at the same time. Everyone starts with the same money. Everyone starts with the same resources. There's a bit of luck involved because you're all rolling, you know, the dice. Um, there's a bit of skill involved. What should I buy? When should I buy it? Um, but it, to me, it is the ultimate representation of if we started from zero, that's equality. But let's take the Monopoly game and let's say that we have 10 people to, that we're going to play the game. And the first four, or let's take the first five are, are going to play. Um, they're going to start right away. And they go around the circle and they play for 45 minutes. And what they do is they play is they spend it, spend the, uh, roll the dice. They get $200 every time they pass go. They started with the money that they started with. They start buying real estate and hotels. And then we let the next three people start after 45 minutes. Uh, now, there's still some opportunity here for them, right? There's some opportunity. They got the same money to start with. They too get $200 every time they pass go. So some would say it's equal because they get $200 every time they pass go. But a lot of the land's already been purchased. And so they're landing on people's property and paying them for it. Wow. And then let's bring the last two people in. By the time they get in, all the property has been purchased. They still get $200 when they pass go. They still started with the same money, every, but now they're spending more money than they're making because all they can do is land on other people's property. So that is an equal game, but it doesn't provide equity because of how people came into it. So the problem with the, the challenge of equity is we've got to figure out how to move ourselves on that path without people believing that they've got to give up something so that someone else can get into the game and a real place of, of, uh, of ability to compete. Does that help? That analogy, thank you, was really, really powerful, the monopoly analogy. And you're exactly right. This is a very complex problem. How do we move this forward? Yes, it is complex. It is complex. And, you know, when I, I hear people say, well, it's really complex. Well, you know, a lot of things we do in this country are really complex. I love using the PPP loan distribution as you're talking about complex. And within weeks, though, we put out trillions of dollars of money through PPP and we had corruption and we had um, mismanagement and we had people that got it that shouldn't get it and all kinds of things. But we felt that was OK. But fixing an equity problem for some reason doesn't seem to, to be on par. So there's a way to get at this. Smart people can help us work through it. I couldn't agree with you more. And just because something's complex doesn't mean we don't address it and move forward full throttle. No doubt about that. Now, in this great book of yours, you mentioned this reluctance to study and learn our nation's history in the context of race. You alluded a little bit to this before, but 
Let's peel the onion some more, if that's okay, Mel. Can you expound on the value of learning our nation's history in the context of race, please? Yeah, as as I mentioned before, I think it allows us to understand the inequities, how they became that way, and it also lets you see patterns of behavior. So, for example, when I hear about laws restricting voting rights, I hear it differently than my white friends. Because I go back to Jim Crow laws and I think, wait, are we doing this again? Well, people say, no, no, that was about race. No, actually, most of the Jim Crow laws said nothing about race, but they were crafted in a way that predominantly affected black people in the South. Sure, poor whites got caught up in it, too, but majority of the people caught in it were black. And so I see patterns that I think, wait, I think we might be repeating. And that gives us that enlightenment gives us an opportunity to say, I got to study that more. I had this conversation at breakfast with a friend just last week. He said, I thought that was fixing some of the problems from the the, the, uh, loosing of the laws for COVID. I said, number one. Even that didn't create widespread voter fraud, no evidence of it. And number two, no, what they're doing in Texas and other states and Georgia and the laws that they're changing have nothing to do with repealing things they did in COVID. They're going much, much further than that. But my white friend had not invested himself in discovering that. Now he is because he's saying, oh, now I see which, why you see that pattern. And so studying the history will show us patterns of behavior and response. When I hear law and order, for example, I understand what law and order means now because I watched Nixon use the same thing, you know, on this, this war on crime. And so I see the patterns that, that emerge. And, and I think studying the history will help. No doubt about that. Now, I would imagine, Mel, if you don't mind me saying this, You've probably gotten a bit of pushback somewhere along the line to this book and to some of these great things you're doing. How do you respond to the pushback to people that just say there's just too much focus on race in America right now? Um, I've got two I've got two pushbacks. Uh, uh, Well, actually, I don't really push back, to be honest with you. First, I say, did you read the book? Because if you're talking to me and you haven't read the book, then I'm nearly not going to talk to you much, because I think most people, when they read the book, they're like, I get it like the tone, the the expectations, all that, I think they get it. But the second one is, I like to say, I didn't make race a thing. So when you say it's too much attention on race, I didn't put the attention on race. I simply want to live my life like you want to live yours without the constraints that someone, if it wasn't you, someone put into our systems. And so if you think there's too much attention on race, Let's say we agree. Let's together go figure out how we move a country forward that makes race not a thing. But today, race is a thing. And I got data and gaps and and achievement and all kinds of things that I can show you that suggest race is a thing. Uh, For better or for worse, I do think it's better. There have been a tremendous number of studies done that show race is a thing right now. So it's not just someone's opinion, but there's hard, cold facts. They really are. And again, if you're not invested in, in understanding those facts, um, then I get it. I understand why you wouldn't. There's a lot of things to think about in this world, you know, climate change and homelessness and all kinds of other things. And, um, and so I'm just asking you to spend a little time questioning your own previously held beliefs so that we can move our country forward. Yeah, that's so critical. No doubt about it. Now, one of the other bold things you say, uh, Mel, is that blacks and whites have a different contract with America. I've never heard this phrase before. 
Help us out. What do you mean by this? Yeah, so, you know, when our country was, was being formed, you had these inalienable rights. And I believe that white Americans have inalienable rights. I think my rights are situation. I'll give you an example. Um, if I am in a hoodie driving my luxury vehicle through my neighborhood and I am pulled over at 1130 at night and I have an encounter with a police officer, his assumptions about who I am are likely to be certain things. Luxury car, hoodie on, 1130 at night. His assumptions are different than mine, than they might be for someone else. And uh, what could happen there if I have a bad attitude, which I probably would, because I'll be pretty frustrated for being pulled over in, in my luxury. Sure. Um, uh, and, and, and so certain things can ensue from me misbehaving because I'm pissed. The officer misunderstanding because he came with a preconceived notion and we have some kind of altercation. But the one that points out highly to me is Trayvon Martin. You may not remember Trayvon. He was a 15 or so year old kid. He was walking through his neighborhood. He had a hoodie on, earplugs in. He was eating Skittles and drinking Gatorade. He runs into a uh, neighborhood watch person who the police told, hey, you know, leave that kid alone. We're on our way. And all the, the, the neighborhood watch person, he looks suspicious. Broad daylight, he looks suspicious. So he approaches this young man anyway. A scuffle ensues. The man is, the young man is killed. The, the, the neighborhood watch person was told not to approach. He approached anyway. The young man's killed. That guy didn't spend one day in jail. And then we began to justify why Trayvon Martin's life, so back to negotiate, you know, ours, ours are, are uh, situational, our, our rights are situational. Trayvon was, had, had marijuana in his system, and he was truant from school. Therefore, instead of inalienable rights, he had a right to be shot and the other person uh-huh. had a right to shoot him. And so when I see those repeatedly happening, so why is it important that he has marijuana in his system? Why is it important that he has a history of truancy and he was truant that day? Does that equal he should be, it's okay to shoot, kill him and this person have no prosecution. So I'm not trying to, to divide us here on this. What I am trying to say is we've got to see the patterns of there's inalienable rights and there's situational or negotiated rights. And, and it's all throughout the civil rights movement. We negotiated settlements that whites could accept or whites could put up with and blacks would accept. I mean, there's all these negotiated settlements around what is good enough for me where I don't think my white counterparts have that same thing. It's playing out now. You, you see people storm a state capital because of uh, COVID restrictions. Can you imagine 500 black people armed storming a state capitol. I mean, let's just pause for a second. It just wouldn't happen. There'd be Armageddon. There'd be dead bodies everywhere. But, but it didn't happen. You know, that doesn't happen when white Americans, and they have a full right now. They have a full right to bear arms and to, to storm their state capitol. Actually, I think that was generally peaceful protest. But can you imagine? If black people were showing up armed like that. So so when I see these things, I, I ask my wife, she's like, really? Do you believe that our rights are equal? I think we do have two different contracts. Wow. Yeah, you've done a great job explaining what you mean by that powerful <laughs> statement. No doubt about Sorry about that. <laughs> now, this is a really important question that's not only going to help me, but our listeners as well. What are the specific things white people like me can do to close the racial divide and create the path for true equality. Now, help us out here, please. 
Yeah. Um, so, so we've talked about some of them, but first is increase your own personal awareness. If you, if some of the things I'm saying you question whether they're true, go do your research because I don't think I've been untrue or inaccurate on anything I've said. Um, that's why I didn't use any statistics because if I do, I'm usually a little off on some of the statistics. But if, if you don't believe that, uh, that the things I've said are true, go, go do your own research. So become more self-aware because I think when you become more knowledgeable and self-aware, you have your, your heart and mind are open to new things. You may not agree with everything I write, everything I say, everything you see. I hope you don't. I mean, we need some dialogue here, but that's number one. The second is the, what I call in the book, actions of intentionality. There is this gap between blacks and whites, and then there's everybody in between, right? So if your listeners are wondering, like, where is he leaving? You know, why is he leaving? No, no. Our, our racial construct is whites on top, blacks on the bottom, and everyone else in between. And literally, we can gradate, you know, that in between. Sure. If, if indeed we, that is true, um, there are some actions of intentionality that will close that gap between us. How do we spend our money? How do we hire people? How do we engage uh, ourselves in consumption of art and entertainment? And, you know, when's the last time a white person went to a black, I'm using air quotes, your listeners can't see it, a black film? You know, one of my favorites is Love Jones. It's an old film. It's just a love story. And and there's nothing uh, different about it except all the characters are black. And I think, when is the last time a white person's engaged in that? So I think there's some actions of intentionality that bring us more proximate to each other that can close the gaps on how we speak. So if you spend your money intentionally in ways that are diverse, if you if you hire and promote, those are actions of intentionality. And the last thing, and I think this is the most long-term thing we've got to keep our pedal on, is we got to start seeing these systems. So I've already mentioned, when you see voting rights, people wanting to change voting uh, access to voting, you should be thinking, that sounds fishy to me. Who's winning? Who's losing? Why are they doing it now? You know, when you see, uh, you know, housing patterns come out, you know, um, who's winning? Who's winning? I mean, if we, we, a lot of your listeners are in the, the boroughs of New York. You know, the most segregated school system in the country is in New York City. And so um, how did that all go? And are they are those schools equal? And are they getting equal resources? And how do we break? So those longer term things are things that I think takes more energy to understand what we got to be doing those two. So those are the three things. And in the book, I, about 35% of this book is about solutions. What can we do together to move ourselves on a path to equity? That's one of the reasons this book really resonated with me is that you offer common sense solutions uh, for moving forward. The three words that you just used a few times there, patterns, systems, and one of my favorite, intentionality. And I know it has to start with Greg. I need to be more intentional about what we're talking about today. Uh, no doubt about it. Sadly, we've only got a few more minutes, but I still have a couple of important questions to ask Greg. you, if that's okay. Love this it. really uh, resonated with me because you refer to systemic racism. I've never heard anyone else say this as an illness. What is your response to a white friend who may fundamentally disagree with this assessment? Well, again, I'll go back to, if, have you read the book? And if you read the book, then now we can have a conversation about your disagreement. Although I think you find it hard to disagree. And here's why I say it's, an, well, maybe we should call it an operating system. 
So it's kind of like your computer. You show up to your computer, at least I do, and I turn it on. And however Microsoft decided they present it to me, whatever colors they're using, whatever drop-down menus, I think, okay, as long as it's working for me, then it's working just fine. I didn't get to pick what operate, what what programs will work on this computer and which ones won't and which ones work very well and which ones work a little slower. So maybe, it, 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 I do believe it's a disease, but maybe it's an operating system that we've come to accept because it works for us, but it doesn't work for everyone. Racism is embedded and it doesn't need a racist to make it real, which is why I don't call my, my white friends racist. First of all, I'd make them hard to be my friends if I thought they were racist. But secondly, I don't think racism needs a system, needs, needs a assistance from racists to make it work. There are fundamental systems that are embedded in our country's history that have never been played out that allows it to perpetuate whites on top, blacks on the bottom and everyone else in between. That's what I mean by a disease. And if we don't start treating that base problem that started 400 years ago, and we just kept altering its kind of presence. It kept morphing into its current day. If we don't stop and say, wait, that is the disproportionately affecting people of color. We've got to do something about the system. Then it continues to be a disease. We've saved Mel, the most important question for last. Where can our loyal listeners purchase this great book, Dear White Friend, and how can they best follow you? Well, they can best follow uh, us at um, uh, dearwhitefriend.com. Um, we're uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to learn my LinkedIn and Facebook stuff, and, uh, but it's all available at dearwhitefriend.com. Um, the book is available wherever fine books are sold, so that's an easy one. But if they want to go to our website, we've been intentional at dearwhitefriend.com of listing. African-American-owned uh, booksellers that do a very nice job of selling online. And the others are there, too, the larger names that you you know and love. And, and so they can go to our site and find um, uh, ways to order right from there. Terrific. DearWhiteFriend.com. And listeners, after you've done that, please, please buy a book for yourself. Uh, this makes a great holiday gift. The holiday is not too far away. Uh, this, as I said, was tremendously enlightening to me. I know it will be for you and those you choose to share it with as well. So please do that. And once you've done that, please uh, also don't hesitate to our Twitter or our Facebook or our LinkedIn, uh, our Instagram. Follow us as well. Give us your thoughts, your questions, comments, guest suggestions, et cetera, et cetera. Melvin J. Gravely II, we can't thank you enough for being part of Thank God for Monday this week. Yes, you've enlightened us much more. You've inspired us to really be much more intentional about what we need to do to bring true equity, bring true equality uh, in this country of ours. This is all of our responsibilities, no matter what color our skin is. Keep fighting that great fight. Thank you for all you're doing and continued success, joy and happiness in all this great work you're doing. Thanks, Brother Greg. I appreciate it. Listeners, sadly, guess what? Once again, we're out of time. Greg saying our hope and prayer is that when you wake up on Monday morning, just like Mel does, you'll say, thank God for Monday.